All right, friends, if you've got a Bible, we are in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Turn on your phones, grab your iPads. If you're using the Pewback Bibles or the Bibles that are to your right as you walk in, then it's on page 600. Acts chapter 15. I'm going to read from verses 1 to 21, and then I'm going to pick up again at verse 30 and 31. This is the word of the Lord, and it's intended to change your heart and mine. Give your attention to it. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas said some of the others, and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the necks of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the word of the prophets agreed just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to obtain the things, to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. In verse 30. And so they were, when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you will take this word now and you will marinate our hearts with it and through it by the power of your Holy Spirit. 
Would you change us, we pray, through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, ticket scalping is big business. And it's especially big business down in Oklahoma City in May because what happens almost every year in May in Oklahoma City. The Thunder are in the finals, or at least they're in the playoffs. And this year, when they were playing in the Western Conference Finals, there was a man whose name was John who came down from, not Jerusalem, he came down from Cleveland, Ohio to live in Oklahoma City for the season because he was an expert scalper. He would make fake tickets to the games and he would make a quick buck. So there was a girl who had um, two sons who they were just dying to go and see the game. They'd never seen Kevin Durant play. And so she goes and she finds this, these tickets. And so she buys three tickets. And $900 later, she's got three tickets to the Western Conference Finals. And they're great seats. And she cannot believe she got such a good deal. Except that night, she goes home and she's fiddling around on Craigslist and she sees the exact same tickets on sale on Craigslist. And so she does a little recon and then she calls the police and not long after that, our friend John from Cleveland, Ohio gets arrested. Fake tickets are big business. And in Acts chapter 15, you find a fake scalping scandal going on in the church. That is, when you have fake tickets to the game, what happens? You go to the gate and you give them to the ushers to let you in, and they turn you back at the gate. Well, here you have people preaching in Acts chapter 15, which is the very center of the book of Acts. Luke puts this situation at the very center of the story he writes to Theophilus. Because he wants people to know that there is a fake ticket scandal going on in the church. And it must be dealt with. And so in Acts chapter 15, you see people who are selling fake tickets to the kingdom. And they're held to account. Because how do you tell the difference between fake tickets and real tickets? When you go to church and you hear the gospel preached, how do you know if it's the real gospel or if it's another man-made gospel? That's the question they're after in Acts chapter 15. And listen, the issue here is not to go to the Western Conference Finals. The issue here was of infinite more magnitude. It was, are you a member of the kingdom or not? And the issue was, you had some very conservative people the right wing of the church, if you will, who said, look, Christianity has to cost you something. And not only do you have to believe in Jesus, like we have no problem with the Gentiles coming into the church. I mean, Amos, as Nathan read earlier, and as Peter uh, refers to in this text, James rather refers to in this text, the Gentiles will come into the kingdom. The question is, what's the means by which they get in? It's not just faith. Bring out the scalpels because they've got to be circumcised. When, when I was getting ready for the Sunday, um, on occasion there are times when, when you get ready for a sermon and you're just waylaid by a text um, and you're beat up by it. I, I love a diverse crowd of people. I love, I love a diverse group of people. 
just my personality. I love all kinds of people. But as I begin to think more and more about the issue in this text, the issue where there are conservative people who were saying, look, it's not just the gospel of Jesus, but it's the gospel and something else. It began to become a public indictment of my own personal insecurity. You know, I, um, I grew up in a church where um, um, I, I really didn't know, a, I didn't really, I really didn't know a whole lot about Scripture other than what you should do to be a good Christian. Like, you should, you know, do these certain things in order to, to make God love you more and, and obey these things and God will be pleased with you. And it became kind of a performance treadmill for me. And the funny thing was, I thought I got off of that, and I went to seminary, and a whole new world was blown open for me when I began to learn about the history of the church. And what's convicting to me about this passage is that I, on one hand, believe that you're saved by faith alone, on the basis of grace alone, and many of you do too. But functionally, I think I began to believe that God really liked me because I knew church history. Or that he really began to like me because I knew more about the Bible because I'd been to seminary. And there was kind of a subtle circumcision syndrome in my heart. I began to say, you know, I've been to seminary, so God, you owe me. And I know more about the history of the church, so God, you owe, you owe me. And then I began in my arrogance and pride and utter snobbery, I began to think, you know, people who don't know these things, they're just not as Christian. And it began to affect relationships and friendships. And just yesterday, I was at a, um, a, a bachelor party for an old college roommate, and I'm sitting in this group of guys who were catching up and talking, and I just realized all those brothers who, when I was in seminary, I just cut friendships off with. And um, I grieved. I know that I have real tickets. And they are free of charge to me. But man, I want to pay something for them. And so many of you do too, if you're like me. Like you know that you're saved by faith. You really do believe that. But if you're really honest, you think that you're saved by faith, but it's also, you know, wearing blue plaid and denim. Or it's also making sure that you live on a certain uh, place or you have a certain lifestyle. Or these are the kind of people you always want to hang out with. And slowly but surely, friends, if we are not careful in our small church plant, we are going to love the people who look like us. And we, with a very, very subtle, slow, painful series of decisions, We'll begin to proclaim the gospel is free of charge. You only have to listen to NPR. You only have to go to certain places. You only have to like these kinds of drinks. You only have to eat this kind of food. You only have to whatever it can be. What are you a gospel plus person? What, rather, what do you add to the gospel in your own life to make yourself feel approved and loved by God? What's the problem with fake tickets? The problem with fake tickets is that they're expensive. But when you pay a lot of money for good tickets, man, it feels good. And in this situation, you had 
Paul going to the Gentiles, preaching in Lystra, meeting a young man who is from this backwoods town of Lystra named Timothy, who comes to know Jesus. And Paul will hook up again with Timothy in a couple of chapters. And then he comes back to Antioch. And when he's in Antioch, there are a group of Jews that are coming down from Jerusalem, which Jerusalem is south, but they come down in the sense that there's a change in elevation. They go down the hill of Jerusalem to Antioch and they're saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, it's cool that Gentiles are coming in. You can look and feel all you want differently than we are, but if you're gonna be in the church, you better get circumcised. There's the line, here's the scalpel. And Paul and Barnabas have this fierce debate with these guys. It, you know, in Greek, it, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's underspoken. It says they, there had been much debate. No, they fought it out in Greek. They were passionate about this because this was the heart of the gospel. It's an issue of fake tickets or real tickets because when you come up to the gate one day, somebody's getting in and somebody's going to get turned around. Real tickets, Paul argues, are God-issued tickets. Fake tickets are man-earned tickets. And there is a huge difference. Do you know the difference? So we learn two things about real and fake tickets in this passage. Real tickets are God-issued tickets. Antioch was the beachhead of the Gentile world. It was where the missions all began out of Syrian Antioch, just north of Jerusalem. And it's in Antioch that these Judaizers, these people of the circumcision party, come and they're telling people, look, you've got to be circumcised to be a Christian. You've got to know the songs at Trinity. You've got to know, the order. You gotta know what the heck the Nicene Creed is in order to be a Christian. And Paul says, no, you don't. You've got to know that you're a broken sinner in need of grace and that Jesus Christ and him alone is the only way you can become worthy because you're not on your own. But, 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 but all throughout the Old Testament, Paul, it says you have to be circumcised to be a member of the covenant. And they said, listen, we can't do this on our own. And we're not going to split because we disagree. This is too important. Let's all go to Jerusalem. And so the Antioch church commissions Paul and Barnabas to go to Jerusalem. And all the elders and the apostles meet for the first general assembly, this great convocation. And they duke it out to figure out what exactly needs to be taught to the Gentiles so that they can be in the church. If you look at verse 1, it says that they say, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And then in verse 5, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law and keep the law of Moses. So these Judaizers, they got to Jerusalem and there were some warm hugs and handshakes. I'm sure there were some new elders that met Paul and Barnabas for the first time. They'd heard about them. Paul and Barnabas shared all about their missionary journeys. And then these cons this conservative right wing, hear me please, because this is most of us, rose up and they said, hey look, hey listen, you gotta be circumcised. And then Peter Paul and Barnabas, and then the moderator of this meeting, James, chime in. And Peter stands up first. And Peter says, listen, 
Do you remember Cornelius, who back in Acts chapter 10, it was probably 10 years ago, do you remember what God did to Cornelius? He chose me to be an instrument. I wasn't anything special. I was a Jew. He used me to communicate to Cornelius the gospel. And God knew his heart. Verse 8, And God who knows the heart bore witness to them, Cornelius and all the Gentiles, and he gave them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. In verse 9, He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. So Peter's argument goes like this. Let's take an experiential argument. Look at the Gentiles. They're Christians. And God did not make them have to dress and look like us. He knows their hearts. And he gave them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction. But then Peter turns the knife and he says, okay, so let's listen. Why would you who are Jewish, who can't even keep the law yourself, demand that the Gentiles therefore keep the law? Why would you put a yoke upon their shoulders that you, brother, cannot even bear? Listen, every church tends to, every church tends to have something they add to the gospel. It's very subtle. Sometimes it's, you have to listen to this kind of worship. Sometimes it's, you have to have this kind of instruments up front. Sometimes it's a pastor has to wear this. The, whatever, whatever. Every church has it, and so do we. And the question is, how do we assess ourselves well enough as a congregation, especially as a young church plant, so that what we hold central in this church is one thing, and that is the gospel of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything else, though there are many important secondary issues, become just that, become secondary. And we're not going to require somebody to come dress and look like me. They don't have to wear red winged boots and dark denim jeans to become part of this church. If they have tattoos, bring them on. If they've got piercings, get some more. I mean, you don't, if you, it doesn't matter what color your skin is. Some of the teenagers are going, hey, listen to that, mom. We've got to be self-aware enough to recognize that you subtly, even though you may be attracted to one kind of personality just by the nature of your own personality, it doesn't give you any right to look down your nose upon somebody else because you think you're better. Because friends, what makes you worthy? It's not your performance. And you're a good looking group, but it's not your looks. It is your Savior who loves you. And he sings over you. And friends, we will not grow as a church if we make people feel like they got to be Presbyterian to come in these doors. All that word means is that I'm held accountable as your pastor. That's all Presbyterian means. And there are people who know me, and you have recourse for where you can go if I, if I make a stupid decision or you get hurt by me. And I have a place to go in case the opposite happens. That's all it means. That the gospel is what defines us. And we want to keep it crucial and central. Real ticket faith is God issued. Fake ticket faith is man earned. There was a story where Peter goes to see Paul in Antioch. 
And when Peter goes to Antioch, this is in Galatians chapter 2, and I, I believe, although there is some debate, I do believe that Galatians was written before the Jerusalem Council. So those of you who like to geek out for just a minute with me, I believe in the South Galatian view of Galatians, which means that Galatians was written earlier in his missionary journeys, not later. So I think before this council happened, Paul and Peter had had an exchange of words because Peter was having uh, dinner with the Gentiles in Antioch, and Paul was there. And then this, these guys, this right-wing group, right, this real powerful Jewish Christian, they're Christians, but they grew up as Jews. They come and they see Peter eating with these Gentiles, and Peter just backpedals. And he, and he pushes away from the table, and he's like, Gentiles. And he starts like chumming up to the Jews, the Christian Jews. And Paul comes off of his horse and he gets in Peter's face and he says, you are not walking in the truth of the gospel, man. How can you who are a Jew who's living like a Gentile force Gentiles to then live like Jews? And so here Peter is in Jerusalem at this general assembly and he stands up to speak and he is passionate about it because his friend Paul just totally rebuked him to his face. And Peter in the journey from Antioch to Jerusalem had an incredible season of repentance. And so here's Peter saying he's right. We should not demand that the, that the Gentiles have to be circumcised for us. And then Paul and Barnabas stand up and they recount all the miracles and Luke summarizes each of these arguments. He doesn't really go into detail about Paul and Barnabas because he just did it in chapters 13 and 14. And then James stands up. And James, you know, the, 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 these are the men of James. They're from Jerusalem. They think that James is in their court. And here's the moderator of the, of the assembly. And normally in our day, moderators don't have the vote, but he did. And James stands up. And all the Jews thinking that James is just going to shut them down. James stands up, the brother of Jesus, who came to know him in his post-resurrection appearance. James the just, because of his reputation for righteousness, he's going to bring us the truth. And he stands up and he says, Simeon, that's the Hebrew tender name for Simon Peter. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a holy people for his namesake. And James, on behalf of the Gentiles, stands up and says, the Gentiles are true Israel, just like you. You don't know how I know that? James could have said, look at the example of Cornelius. He could have said, look at the example of Paul. No, James goes exactly to the heart of their cultural value. Open the Bible and look at Amos. In Amos chapter 9, Amos says two things. David's line will continue, and it will continue with the inclusion of Gentiles. And so here's what we're going to do. We are not going to make them have to circumcise themselves because God does not ask that. The gospel is completely free. But because there are so many synagogues and there are so many Christians who grew up Jewish who still practice many of the cultural Jewish things. 
We're gonna encourage the churches to be sensitive to those brothers and be very careful about how they can determine, Gentiles could marry cousins, for example. They said, no, we've gotta be careful on the laws and rules of our own sexuality. We've gotta be careful that you don't eat meat that is strangled, that is, Jews would slit the throat of the sacrifices to drain the blood. Gentiles, Gentile pagans, would often just eat the animal. They would strangle it, therefore not letting any blood out, and they would eat it. And the Jews thought that was unclean. And they said, look, just be sensitive to your Jewish brothers. Just be sensitive to it. Because there are a lot of unconverted Jews that will be watching you, and don't put an obstacle in their way to hear the gospel. So heads up. That's true for us, too, by the way. Real ticket faith is issued by God. Man ticket faith is God earned. And there's a sense in which you can take good things of the Lord and you can make them ultimate things. And you begin to say, if you don't do it like we do it, then you're not really accepted. If you don't hunt, you're not really a man. If you don't have a community garden, you're not being a good steward. I mean, give me a break. Is it a Prius or suburban? What is it? I don't know. Who knows, right? Who knows? If you, um, listen, some, you know, if you enjoy God's good gifts of alcohol, great. If you can do it in a way that honors the Lord, never being mastered by it. But if there's somebody in your community group who doesn't drink, do you think that they're legalistic? Really? They probably aren't. Maybe they are. But do you ask that question? Or do you just judge them as less spiritual than you are because you can drink a beer? Listen, these are really important questions to ask and answer because we're trying to plant a church in the middle of a very overchurched area that's under-gospeled. And if we're going to keep the gospel central, we've got to be aware of those things that we add to it. Real ticket faith is God-issued. He knows your heart. Man-ticketed, fake-ticket faith is man-earned. But that's not all we see. God brings you inside. This is the second point that emerges from this chapter. He brings you in the church with tickets. He gives you free of charge. He brings you inside in order to get beside each other. Do you hear me? Can I get an amen? He brings you inside to get beside each other. There are people, there are people, I pro, there are people, I, I know this is true because I do this. There are people who think they get into the church because they earned it, because they're worthy. And then they begin to make little snide comments, or they begin to look down their nose at people, or they begin to create this little veneer of this is what you must do to grow in Jesus, and it's just not centered on the gospel. There's only one way to grow in the gospel, and you don't know what it is? It's not complicated, like fake tickets are complicated. You gotta get the logo right and the barcode, you gotta get it to print off just right. I mean, it's hard, it's hard work. But real tickets are just given to you, and they're really simple. And you grow in the gospel through faith, and repentance and you never get past that and you want to be a student of the word because you want to grow in faith and repentance 
And yes, you do want to be able to have a quiet time. Yes, you want to spend time with the Lord. Yes, you want to be able to pray. Yes, you want to know church history. Why? Because it helps you recognize, like the Apostle Paul did throughout his ministry, that the more and more he grew in faith and repentance, actually the more sinful he saw that he was. Because it says God knows the heart. And you know what God sees when he looks at sinners? He sees utter destruction and brokenness. And he knows your heart. And he knew your heart before you became a Christian. And he knows mine. But the good news of the gospel is that through Jesus Christ, when he looks at your heart, do you know what he sees? He sees the spotless Lamb of God. And he makes you worthy because of his work for us. Let me just get real um, in closing and ask a really pointed diagnostic question. Look around for a second in this room. Who do you feel ownership for in this church? Because these guys could have split ways. And this happens all the time. People leave the church and the elders get nervous and they call it a church plant. And it's, maybe it's a church splant at best. Because in the Bible, in Romans chapter 14, 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is searching for an analogy to describe what the body of Christ is like. And he doesn't say your business partners. He doesn't call them partners. You're more than that. Although we should give together. He says that you're members of one body. And therefore, whenever you lose a limb, it is painful and if it is not planned out and it is not done with a process, it is brutal. Um, there's, there's a man in town, um, the, the, the Keltners aren't here, but the Keltners bought a house from a man named One Toed Joe who lost his legs in a horrible accident. And that's what happens to a lot of churches. People commit and they go, oh, I don't really like that church, I'm going to go find another one. But when you commit to a body, if you leave that body without surgical precision and antiseptic and anesthesia and being thoughtful about it and bringing people to the OR together with you. There's plenty of good reasons to leave the church, but it needs to be surgically done. Otherwise, you're ripping limbs off and you become like one toe Joe. Who do you feel ownership for at Trinity? And if you feel, well, you know, I, I think I should call them, but that's Pastor Blake's job. He'll reach out to them. You need to repent of that attitude because that's not my job. My job is to preach the word and to pray. I lead the vision of this church together with the elders. The staff manages and the volunteers help manage. But do you know who ministers in our church? The congregation. They're the ones who are the priests together. And so therefore, we need to be in each other's lives. So if you're not in a community group, I beg of you to get in one this fall. And if you're leading in a community group, I beg of you to make that community group one that is robust, where you're talking together about real life issues, where you know what's going on with your kids, where you know what's going on in their life, where you know their insecurities and their vulnerabilities, and you share your own. Because listen, you don't have to have it all together to be worthy. That's what the whole chapter is about in Acts 15. He makes you worthy. And therefore, we can share ownership over each other because we're a family. No, we're more than a family. We're the same body.
And when my big toe aches, man, my whole body knows about it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer one time said, the more genuine and deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede and the more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the only thing that is vital between us. Jacques Ellul once said in a book called The Technological Society that we in the West tend to use relationships as a means to an end instead of seeing them as an end in and of themselves. That's exactly what Scripture teaches about friendships too. If you're a realtor in Owasso or Bigsby or Claremore or Tulsa, you got to join a church. That's what they all tell them. But listen, if you're using each other as means to an end, you're going to get burned out and you're going to get frustrated and you're going to get hurt. But if you can see each other as ends in themselves, nothing is more beautiful. The most beautiful thing in this room right now is not the Lord's Supper, it's not the screens, it's each other's faces. You are the most beautiful. We can have the most beautiful Gothic cathedral in the world. You'd still be the most beautiful thing in that room. You are an end in itself, not a means to an end, so don't treat each other that way. And so therefore, don't demand that people look like you, talk like you, act like you, because you feel like you're having, you're more comfortable because they're like you. We want to be about the gospel. We want to win the lost. And we want to remove everything we can so that Christ and him crucified becomes central for us. Luther said, Paul was strong in faith and soft in love. And so as concerning the truth, we ought to be invincible and hard as stone. But as to love, we ought to be soft and more flexible than the reed or leaf that is shaken by the wind and yet ready to yield its preference for the sake of unity. Or as John Newton, the old slave trader, said, Paul was a reed in non-essentials, but he was an iron pillar in essentials. Friends, do you have real tickets or are they fake? Do you add to the gospel or do you take them free of charge? Because they're free for you. They cost you nothing. But don't think they're not expensive because they cost Christ everything because he loved you. And he does love you and he's not afraid, ashamed of you. Don't be fearful of him. He loves you and he's drawing you in even now to run to him in repentance and joy because he takes you just as you are. But he loves you too much to leave you that way. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you take our hearts and you, though you know them, darkened by sin, you open our hearts to believe and you give us God-issued tickets that are free of charge to us but cost you everything. And so, Lord, would you therefore help us to be a community that reminds each other of that truth, that loves each other enough to point each other back to the gospel, where we see that our only worthiness is the worthiness that comes to us through faith in Christ. And therefore, we want to live and obey and trust and become even better image bearers of you because of what you have first done for us. So help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.